0: Hi, welcome to episode 41 of Global Exchanges, a podcast about foreign exchange markets and related issues. I'm Greg Anderson. For this week's episode, my co-host Stephen Gal and I will be talking about noteworthy FX moves over the past week, and what they may mean going forward, with particular emphasis on the Chinese renminbi and Japanese yen. The title of this episode is Stresses in Intra-Asia FX.
1: Hi, I'm Stephen Gallo, a London-based FX strategist. Welcome to Global Exchanges presented by BMO Capital Markets. Hi, I'm Greg Anderson, a New York-based FX strategist. I'm Steven's co-host. In each weekly podcast like today's, we discuss our perspectives on the global economy and the foreign exchange market. We also bring in guests from the FX industry and from related financial markets like commodities.
0: We strive to make this show as interactive as possible So don't hesitate to reach out by going to bmocm.com slash global exchanges. Thanks for joining us.
2: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates or subsidiaries.
1: Okay, Dr. Anderson, let's get the ball rolling again. It's the 26th of April, 2022. Um, We're coming towards the end of An interesting month in FX, Uh, for once in a long while, uh, we are seeing examples where FX markets are driving moves in other asset classes and not simply taking direction from other asset classes. The obvious example uh, being the move in the RMB just recently, uh, but we'll touch on that a bit later. Uh, but given this pickup in FX volatility, and, and I haven't even mentioned the yen yet, uh, but given this pickup in, in, in volatility, I want to go back to our previous podcast content. Uh, that was episode 40 entitled, Does the FX Market Need an Intervention, is what we asked. Well, according to last week's G7 finance ministers and central bank governors official statement, there's no need at all. Uh, We couldn't find any reference to exchange rates or cooperation on exchange rates at all in in the entire statement. Uh, So in order to dig through some of this, uh, why don't I pass the mic over to you, Greg? And before I do, I just have one question. Uh, If we were questioning the need for some type of intervention, do you think policymakers were doing the same thing behind closed doors last week? So,
0: Stephen, just to lay out the meetings in a, a bit more detail... The deputy heads of G7 and G20 central banks and finance ministries normally gather one to two days prior to their bosses, so they would have been doing that as we were podcasting last Tuesday, and they would have been working on uh, you know what's called a draft communiqué, or now it's simply just referred to as uh, as a joint statement by the G7, uh, and then the G20 just refers to it as a as a statement from the host country. Uh, which this year is Indonesia. So I'll point out that uh, as we were podcasting last week, Darien was making its run above 129. And although it wasn't mentioned in the statement, I would still venture to guess that the move was being discussed along with the uh, risk-benefit profile of intervention that we alluded to in last week's podcast. And one of the things I said last week was that the G7 would probably only agree to a joint intervention at Japan's request if the BOJ were also willing to back it up with a policy shift, like scrapping the yield curve control mechanism and or a a so-called micro rate hike. From the fact that the G7 didn't even reiterate its canned language that FX markets should reflect fundamentals and the chart moves are undesirable, yada, yada, it would seem that Kuroda wasn't willing to make any commitments from his end. So the conversation just stopped there. Anyway, that's just supposition on my part. I will note that dollar-yen seems to have somewhat turned all on its own uh, over the last week thanks to a risk-off tone in global markets that has caused the money market to take a few basis points of Fed rate hikes out of the curve and has also pushed oil to 10% lower than where we were a week ago. But this risk-off tone, Stephen, it's emanating from an interesting place, China. And I I will note that from early March until last week's moment of extreme weakness for the yen, that the yen had weakened about 10% against the renminbi uh, over the span of a month. I can imagine that Chinese officials probably weren't very happy about that yen depreciation And maybe they weren't happy that the G7 and G20 decided not to do anything about it. So um, just looking at the timing of things, G7 and G20 statement drafts were presumably prepared on April 19th ahead of final release on April 20th. And then on April 20th, we got the break above 640 in onshore dollar China. That quickly steamrolled into breaks of 650 and then in dollar CNH 660 over the next several trading sessions. So Mr. Gao, is this uh, all a coincidence or a strategic reaction, do you think?
1: Yes, interesting and complex, Greg. And what I'm going to try to do is my best to make it digestible. You know this, Greg, because you've looked at China for a long time. We can never really isolate one reason for moves in China's currency. It's a closely managed currency and so is the balance of payments. So we don't know exactly why Chinese policymakers chose this point in time to allow the currency to move, to depreciate. In the same sense that we don't know exactly why Chinese policymakers allowed the RMB to appreciate against the currencies in the CFETs basket by 7% over the past year. Why did policymakers allow either of those moves? And I think the short answer, this is my view, is that the RMB is a flexible currency, but it's flexible on China's terms. And when China wants it to be flexible and when China wants it to respond to certain fundamentals... So I think one reason is not the only reason, but one reason for the RMB appreciation from the peak of the pandemic in 2020 until roughly Q2 of this year, it was a combination of current account and financial account inflows. Uh, And with that, very loose Fed policies and abundant dollar liquidity certainly helped, not least because... Loose monetary and loose fiscal policies uh, in the US boosted Chinese exports to America. Uh, But the stampede into Chinese assets in the wake of ultra cheap money due to the pandemic was also notable, I think. Uh, So in that environment, with those flows, policymakers let the currency appreciate. Firstly, to reflect increased demand for RMB and the buildup of of, of foreign currency liquidity onshore. Uh, And secondly, as a means of tightening financial conditions a bit through the exchange rate. We've also got to remember that Chinese government bonds were included in the FTSE World Government Bond Index late last year and combined with more cross-border RMB settlement over time, which is what we're expecting, a lot of that flow should become permanent. Now, Greg, you asked about the depreciation in the yen against the RMB. And while we're at it on this issue, I also mentioned the depreciation of the Korean won in view of the strong trading links between China, Japan, and South Korea. I think maybe policymakers had decided that a 7 to 10% annual gain in the trade-weighted RMB was enough uh, and that the RMB had to sort of realign with the decline in those other Asian currencies year to date. But I think the more important drivers of the move in the RMB have been the flows. It seems likely that COVID lockdowns led to a deterioration in the uh, trade balance this month, April. We should see that data come in over the next week or so. Uh, And we know from looking at um, the FX settlement and sales data that non-resident investors have been trimming their exposure to to RMB portfolio investment assets. Uh, Why are they doing this now? I would say perhaps risk compensation is is a big part of it. Um, China's economy is clearly slowing. Um, Bond yields globally have been repriced higher it's probably a long shot, but maybe China's yields will do that at some point too. Uh, And until now, the RMB has been exceptionally strong. So it's time to trim exposure. Uh, What we haven't seen, at least as far as I can see, is signs of acute financial stress in Chinese markets. I don't think that's what's driving uh, these these outflows. And just as a note about diminishing returns, in mid-2020, the rate differential between the US 10-year treasury yield and the Chinese 10-year Government bond yield in local currency was 244 basis points in favor of the CMY. It's now just eight basis points in favor of the CMY after briefly turning negative earlier this month. So for a short period of time this month, the yield on the U.S. 10-year yield was above China's. So, Stephen,
0: you did seem to agree with me that China at least allowed the first 3 to 4% uh, of the move, even if they didn't cause it. Per se. Uh, but as an observation, I would note that China can't really devalue its currency very much, um, uh, at least against its trading basket, because once dollar RMB starts to move, everything else reacts. So in, in this go-around over the last week, you know, I'll just say that onshore CNY is down about 3% on a week uh, over week basis, but Aussie's down 4%, Euro's down 2%. And Malaysian ring it, you know, also down 2%, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So at any rate, after the dollar China move had gotten to the point where it was influencing other exchange rates and maybe uh, global equity prices too, then Chinese officials came in yesterday with this required reserve ratio cut on dollar positions. Do you have anything you want to say about that
1: policy shift? honestly probably more questions than answers greg um but here's what i suspect i suspect in view of the flows i noted above if i'm interpreting the data correctly uh, that the balance of fx and CMY liquidity onshore has either shifted or it's expected to shift uh, if the trade balance deteriorates uh, and as investors sell their rmb assets and buy foreign currency Now, assuming that puts a strain on dollar liquidity which is onshore it makes sense that the local banks would be instructed to inject more of it hence the reduction in the reserve requirement ratio um, one thing i did note before uh, was the buildup of fx liquidity on shore in 2020 and 2021 and for example you can see that by looking at corporate fx deposits with commercial banks uh, but i should also note that it was so large that buildup uh, what PBOC did in 2021 was increase the triple R on FX deposits with commercial banks two times in order to preserve FX liquidity within the banking system, uh, prevent a sharp increase in FX lending onshore, uh, or, or just currency mis- mismatches, Any, anything else that could potentially leave the financial system short of foreign currency uh, when the supply of foreign currency is no longer as abundant. And the issue of abundant foreign currency liquidity, that's why the impact and the advent of Fed quantitative tightening is going to be very important for the FX space for a number of EM currencies. One other thing to add, Greg, um, on this policy shift we were talking about, as the triple R was cut by 1% this week, offshore CNH rates at certain parts of the curve did in fact rise. So, we saw a loosening of dollar liquidity onshore, which was offset by a tightening of CNH liquidity offshore, in a sense. And that made it more expensive for investors to be short of CNH. I, I saw this as one of the first indications of the PBOC putting the brakes on RMB depreciation. Will it be the last? I'm not so sure about that.
0: Let me just jump in and say that for FX markets, it rarely makes sense to fight the Fed. And it makes even less sense to fight the PBOC. So I guess with where I'm at, with the way that the China-centric risk-off tone has halted the move higher in dollar-yen for now, I'm still not convinced that the move in dollar-yen is over. I think we may yet see a break above 130 as we get through a non-action BOJ meeting later this week and then a 50 basis point Fed rate hike and uh, QT inauguration next week. So I personally think it makes sense to be looking to get long dollar yen on its present 127 handle. I would just prefer to do it if possible on on the rebound rather than on the downstroke, so to speak. My views are pretty similar on, uh, on Aussie USD. So on a 71 handle, I think it's a bargain and I would be looking to get long. But I would also prefer to see it consolidate for a day or two uh before entering that view. I I do think that we will get a hawkish RBA next week uh and with that that uh you know we'll see the inauguration of a of a tightening phase and Aussie USD I think I think it'll make its way back up toward uh 75 cents over the next 3 months or so. So Combine those two things uh, and we get long Aussie yen as, as a trade idea. And you know yes, that pair has corrected about five percent over the past few days, but I think it'll go right back to where it was if dollar MB will just uh, hold still and consolidate for a while. So that's my favorite FX market play for for now. Uh, what about for you, Steven? Does anything stand out to you?
1: Well, Greg, since you can be wrong in this business as much as you can be right, it's important to mention the good calls as well as the bad ones. Uh, and for the record, my favorite trade, uh, which we discussed in episode 39, was to sell cable above 130. That worked out fairly well. I'd like to be able to take a position in Euro sterling, um, preferably with a bit of downside exposure, but I think. The right thing to do would be patient uh, and wait to see how the pair trades around its 200-day its moving average for a few sessions. Um, if I were to go short Euro Sterling, it would be more of a, of a carry trade rather than a fundamentally bullish view on sterling. So let me make that point clear. I am not bullish on sterling. And then, of course, there's dollar China. Um, you mentioned earlier, Greg, not to fight the Fed or the PBOC, uh, and you're absolutely right. Um, But if I had to make a judgment on whether the full RMB decline was over or that it still had room to run, I'd probably judge that it has a bit further to run. Um, China needs inflows and the exchange rate has to adjust to reflect that, especially with yields in China so low. Um, But... I would rather gain exposure to dollar RMB by waiting for an opportunity to sell the pair, so on the downside, rather than to get involved with the momentum now, in other words, when the RMB is depreciating. In my view, that that is rational because I think the central bank, the PBOC, is likely to be a lot more defensive on regulating the speed of the move in the RMB on the downside rather than when it's appreciating. Um, so... 660 in dollar CNH. It looks like it will hold for a bit, but let's wait to see how the next month or so of events and flows play out.
0: Great comments. And uh, that was a great uh, sterling call from a couple of weeks ago. My Kiwi call from that same episode, not so good. Uh, at any rate, I, I think that we have covered what we needed to.
1: But Greg, don't beat yourself up. You were way ahead on the yen call this year, and that was a big call. And it may get bigger. Right. Let's wrap it up here. As you indicated, Greg, thanks listeners for putting up with us again, and we hope you'll do it again for our next episode. We appreciate it a lot. Bye for now.
0: Thanks for listening to Global Exchanges. Listen to past episodes and find transcripts at bmocm.com slash global exchanges.
1: We'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. You can send us an email or reach out to us on Bloomberg. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast provider. This show
0: and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show is produced and edited by Puddle Creative.
2: This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation, together BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified